You are listening to the Startup Playground. Show where I invite entrepreneurs, startup founders, and game changers to talk about their success stories, learn from their mistakes, and hear about their interesting experiences. Hello, sweet listener. Today we have founder at Localist, Tegan Spinner, in the sweet seat to tell us about his experience within the startup environment. Localist is a startup that has developed a machine learning algorithm that helps you to determine value of your phone in your local secondhand market. However, the team behind the startup hasn't decided to stop there and have more things to evaluate. However, let's hear more from Tegan himself. Hey Tegan. Hey Elvis, how you doing? And thanks uh, for inviting me today. Thanks for agreeing, first of all. You know, I have read a lot about you. And, you know, I have a lot of questions for you. Cool. So, yeah, you uh, hit the nail on the head with what Localist is trying to achieve in the near future. We came to this product from a space where we believed that a lot of the problems around buying or selling something used were centered around price. And we wanted to figure out how could we develop a product that helped people understand the value of what they already own. Of course, we can't do everything at once. As you said, we start with smartphones. Uh, One, because there's a lot of volume in this space. There's a lot of people who are buying and selling their used device. And there's a lot of value difference that is in the space of about a thousand krona or so. So we wanted to focus on this area because we thought we could bring the uh, most value to people from day one. So Great to hear that. Tell me, how is being an entrepreneur in this fast-paced world? Yeah, so... uh, It's been a bit crazy. I mean, I came from Silicon Valley to Copenhagen about three years ago now. And I think that there's a lot of differences. I mean, Copenhagen is uh, slow-paced compared to there. But at the same time, um, there's really a big focus in being honest, true to what you're working on, having good intentions in Copenhagen that I really value. So there's there's this fast-paced kind of environment here. The, the most important or most exciting part about being a founder in Copenhagen is that there's an ability to actually make an impact, meaning there's not so many huge players, huge success stories. So you get the chance to become one of the guys the other guys are looking up to. You know, it's just starting. It's actually really exciting what's going on here right now. A lot of really interesting new investment firms opening, new opportunities. It's growing and developing. It's really cool to be coming in right now at the ground level of the the kind of ecosystem, where I would say mid-level anyway, because it feels like there's opportunity to make a make a difference and and you know and shine really. So, could you call yourself a mentor because you said you know you went through all this? Yeah, so I was allowed to come into Denmark because of something called the Startup Denmark visa. I'm one of only. 300 people to be accepted for the visa. Of those 300, there was only 120 that actually set up a company. I'm actually, right now in my two years extension period, one of only 15 companies that ever made it to be able to get the extension possible. Through that, I talk a lot about it on LinkedIn. I share some of my experiences and I've helped about 15 people go through the process of getting their Startup Denmark visa themselves. Just earlier today, I was talking a bit about, you know, how I raised money in Denmark, because I think the process is very different than from Silicon Valley or a lot of the resources you might find on YouTube on what you're supposed to do when you're trying to raise money. 
So I think uh, I try a lot to uh, both give back to the community at the stage I'm at, you know. I'm not saying my company is uh, successful yet by any means, but I think we've been through a lot of stuff and I like to share that experience. I have also seen the Silicon Valley series, but I have never really, really met a person from there. So maybe you could tell me how it's actually being in Silicon Valley. Yeah, so for any of the people who are listening, Silicon Valley, the HBO series, is a sort of sitcom about the people and experiences that founders have in Silicon Valley. And I would say they hit the nail on the head. For every person in that show, I know the real-life version of them. Uh, so I, I often laugh about, you know, it, they, they really capture the essence of Silicon Valley, the craziness of it from, you know, investors walking into investment rooms on roller skates and people just being over the top. It's, it's an interesting place to be, and there's a, lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of cool things going on, but at the same time, it's almost like you're in another planet that's you know, 10, 15 years ahead sometimes just based on all of the startups that are running their beta projects in one 30-mile radius. So it's, it's, it's cool. <laughs> From 1 to 10, how much you rate Silicon Valley compared to Denmark, Copenhagen? Depends on your stage of your company. So I wrote uh, recently some articles about uh, how I believed Denmark was the best place to launch a company, Copenhagen specifically, because... I think that in Silicon Valley, it's really based a lot on getting to a stage where you either have your rich dad or mom who are going to give you $100,000 or you went to Stanford University or something like that. And if you didn't do those things, then you have no chance. On top of that, companies here think, oh, you can raise so much more money in Silicon Valley. But the problem is that to get a developer or somebody to work with you, because there's 500, you know, 1,000 companies in one little spot, it's very difficult to convince top talent to work on your idea, especially with limited capital. So I think in Denmark, when you're starting something for the first time, uh, you're a first-time entrepreneur, you don't have a, a huge background or a rich family, whatever it is, the opportunities are here because there's two main things that happen in Denmark. The first is that you have a lot of students who are on SU uh, up to 30 years old getting their masters and PhDs but never had a, a real job yet and they need to get some of this work experience to utilize their skill sets in the real world. And nothing gives you that experience faster than working within a startup environment. So I think there's an opportunity to, you know, get those people the experience they need while helping you develop your product from like nothing until the kind of stage where it's able to walk on its own. I think Denmark has some problems in the later stage where you're, uh, you're trying to scale up your company, you're looking for those people who have 10 years, you have a lot of money and the, and the wheel is already kind of running. Then I think you need to look outside Denmark to really have the opportunity to scale well. But 90% of startups die before they ever get to that stage. And I think that you really have a good chance of launching something in Denmark if you're just starting out for the first time. So. Yes, I also have heard about it, that the ecosystem in Denmark for startups is really high. Also, you told me about the articles that you have written. And I also saw that you wrote some articles on LinkedIn, how to become a founder. But what I noticed is that you have stopped writing. May I know why? Yes, yeah, so... It's kind of funny. I started writing this series, The Founder's Guide to Becoming a Better Founder, basically. And uh, my whole theory was that the reason 90% of startups fail was not because their idea sucks. There's tons of programs, resources, people to help you, you know, find product market fit. 
but it comes into the nitty gritty details of running a business. You know, how to pay taxes, how do you interview your first employee? What is a share capital? And, you know, what does it mean to give away 10% of your company and dilution and all of these things that they don't necessarily teach you in school? The reason I stopped writing them actually is just because my, my personal startup was going through, uh, through some major changes and I needed to focus my energy to make sure I righted the ship and got it back on level ground. So it's been about three months since I did the last entry, but uh, in that three months, I was heavily focused on bringing Localist back to fully stable condition before giving advice to people. <laughs> I guess you had to do what you had to do. Yeah, but I still think it's a great cause. There's a lot of really cool things I would like to share with founders in their early stages that I think they need to focus on. And I think we got lucky uh, starting a business in the very beginning as, you know, when you don't have any experience, it's messy. You know, you get checks from your, your friend, you know, you have some employee that's, you know, your roommate and, you know, the contracts, the, the legal setup and foundation of your business. How do you do payroll? How do you do all this kind of stuff? I think that there's a really big opportunity to share those kind of experiences that I haven't found a good resource for yet online. So, so I still think it's something I would like to do and, and keep focusing on as a, as a hobby. But, you know, I've got bigger fish to fry at the moment. <laughs> yes. I think you should continue writing because, I mean, I read yesterday both of the articles about the becoming a founder. And, you know, it's kind of inspired me as a founder myself. Cool. Thank you. Last person who I hosted on uh, my podcast, Mark Daniel from Inels, he told me an interesting fact that uh, you had some relationship to La Telecom Accelerator in Latvia. Is that true? And maybe you can elaborate on it a little bit. Yeah, so it's, it's actually kind of funny. We were a part of uh, this program called Overkill.vc. It's a great program. They're actually right now, I just saw they are opening up their applications for the fall batch. I would highly recommend it to anybody who is looking for a, an intense program to push their project to the next level. It was founded uh, by the, or funded by the guys who are behind the telecom. So they wanted to open up this sort of space to support, it was mainly for B2B startups, but to support early stage companies that were going through something they called the Valley of Death. So... Localist back in July of last year was one of these exact companies. We were going through this stage where we hadn't found product market fit. Our initial uh, source of angel investment was running low, and we needed to make some changes or else we would be one of the 90% of startups that die. And they picked us up exactly at that moment, and I would say righted the ship that, uh, in, in the best way possible. It was an experience. That's, uh, that's one way to put the entire thing. Uh, there was 10 startups that started. By the end of it, there was four that remained. And one of them actually got into Y Combinator directly after Overkill. So it was a very high caliber, but very cool as well. <laughs> I'm living in this country, in Denmark, for seven and a half years. And I always thought that, you know, startup scene in Latvia is kind of really low. But today I found out that it's kind of growing up because, you know, startups overall is a big thing. Exactly. So we lived there actually for three months. One of my employees is from Latvia as well. So I was living with one of my employees, which was also an experience. While I was there, there was always uh, something to do. I went to three or four different startup events throughout the like once every two weeks or something that were quite big, had a big turnout and, you know, some of them were, uh, were starting their investment firms. There was, there was some interesting companies that I 
that I read about in the news. I mean, going from Latvia to Y Combinator is, I think, a pretty uh, good achievement. I think they're doing something right there as far as the Baltic countries go. Uh, in general, I think they're trying to build up their startup ecosystems and really support the founders uh, of their country. And I think it's a good choice because there's a lot of opportunity for growth if you support the right people. That's true. I totally agree with you, Tegan, in this. And But when I left Latvia, it was a global economic crisis. And, you know, <laughs> It's a little bit different now, maybe. <laughs> now, right now, yes, everything is a little bit different people are starting to invest in the startup companies. You told me a lot of things about, you know, your past, but could you maybe tell me what was your driving force of becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, if I were to kind of pinpoint one sort of event that happened where I really thought I wanted to create stuff, the first was the creation of the iPhone. I remember I was like 11 years old or something like that, and I just was reading in this nerdy magazine about this new iPhone that was going to come out. And I just knew it was going to be something that changed the way we all interacted with each other. And I wanted one like then. And I was like, I want this now. <laughs> so, so I think uh, from that moment, I, I focused on building a product that would be in everybody's hands. Because five years later or six years later, when I was uh, getting ready to go into university, I thought it was so cool that one sort of invention could be so integral to everybody's life. So I went into a university in New York called Rochester Institute of Technology as an industrial design student and computer engineering. I kind of mixed them together. And my idea was that I was going to use those degrees to get a job at Apple and design the next iPhone. That's what I really wanted to do out of university. Didn't happen exactly that way. I mean, the closest I got was an internship at uh, Motorola, which <laughs> was like, I mean, that's like, okay, that was pretty cool too. But, but I mean, I think uh, it was... It was something that I always had this sort of passion that that was something I wanted to do when I saw that this was going to be that one person or a small team could create something that everybody used that inspired me to be an entrepreneur. So then I when I moved to Silicon Valley, I just got a whole bunch of ideas and inspired by a lot of different people. And and I also kind of saw how software was another way of, you know, influencing the masses with a smaller amount of money. So that's where I kind of I would say got into the software version of my entrepreneurship journey. And then uh, from there, I started Localist like four years later. <laughs> Let me ask, because you told me that you have an experience in uh, you know, a lot of startups and Localist and you've been in White Combinator, you've been in Latvia, you've been in Silicon Valley. How old are you? Yeah, so uh, I turned 27 this year, actually. So uh, yeah. It's, it's one of those numbers, it just feels like it's, uh, it's only going up, but I guess that means I'm doing something right. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're definitely doing something right, Tegan. I mean, I, 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 now I feel like you're the mentor to me, because you're 27 and I'm 28, and I'm being like, I wasted five years of my life basically doing nothing <laughs> that I can invest like you did. Yeah, I mean, of those five years, I was doing unpaid internships and working at Danish startups as like, you know, the... I was going around in the, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, the industry. So, I mean, it's, it's not glamorous, but I think it's just something you, once you get into it and you have really a passion for, for it, then it's, yeah, it's about kind of just taking it and taking it further. That kind of, I was talking today about like, you know, the 10,000 hours uh, concept. I feel I've definitely put 10,000 hours into entrepreneurship. So I'm beginning to feel a bit like I know what I'm doing. And every time that happens, 
I get smacked in the face with a new surprise. But that's why I love entrepreneurship in general. <laughs> it's never, it's never stopped learning. Yeah, exactly, and it's always, uh, always something new, uh, something exciting, and a bit stressful. But at the same time, yeah, it helps keep the the motor running. I would say. <laughs> What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, Tegan. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Tell me more about your business, and in this case, in what industry does your business operate? Yeah, what industry is a is a difficult question to nail down. In a way, I would say right now the current uh, vision of Localist, which has gone through many changes over the course of the past two years, what we are looking to really do is help users sell their phone fast, sell their used devices fast. And the way we're doing this is basically. We help people understand the value, but we also guarantee a price within 24 hours for their used phone. And the point behind this is that we realize that people don't actually care about how much their stuff costs. What they care about is the simplicity of getting paid for it and getting, you know, getting their money fast. And so, so what they do is they can guarantee a price within 24 hours. And what we do is we capture their information and we pass it on to partner companies as selling it as like a hot lead. This is our business model, so you know we can tell companies like Blue City, Phone Trade, these companies that are looking to purchase up used phones, that hey, we know exactly who is interested in selling their phone for the price you're willing to buy it for. Come to us, we'll sell you that information, and can contact them and hopefully close your sale and get the margins you wanted. So we're trying to be a more efficient place for those business consumers to basically generate their traffic and their leads, and that's the the current model that we're shooting for. I also saw that you also offer the phone to be recycled, or in this case, like sold to like through through you or through Blue City. Yeah. So so actually, one of the things that we we did on the site is we had a, a focus on the environmental impact of smartphones on our generation, anyway. And one of the interesting parts that I didn't even even know going into this project or focus on is the kind of damage that producing a smartphone has. Just one. And combine that with the sort of low lifespan of a device of about a year and a half, it's only getting worse. So what we found is there's two main things. The first is that it takes about if you recycle a used phone, 40% of the energy that was taken to create that device gets instantly destroyed. So on the recycle option, what we're actually doing is directing people to information about why reselling is more environmentally friendly. Brings the device back into the circular economy. You don't destroy all of the work it took to put the tiny pieces together. That forty percent of the metals inside just can't be reused because the properties that made them valuable in the first place within the device get damaged if you recycle it. So things like this are quite interesting when you look at uh, you know the impact we are having on the world when people in their drawers in their cabinets you know they have three or four old devices just sitting there. Those are three or four devices that, if reintroduced into the、uh, circular economy, could prevent someone from having to buy something new and and you know adding to the problem. So it's one of our focuses as well with the company. So you rather put it in a circular economy than recycle. Exactly, it has a much better impact on the environment if you are selling it even cheaply than trying to just put it in one of these recycling boxes that you see around different places. And、this is just based on the、uh, the facts. That's what that button actually does. If you click to it, it explains that whole kind of story quite well. From a company that is called、uh, iFixit, they they do teardowns and repairs of devices. 
they tear down exactly also the environmental impact. And it's kind of an interesting story to read. Also, I yesterday tried to test myself the machine learning algorithm with my phone, and I have Samsung S8 Plus. And I also saw that there is different kind of conditions for the phone. How do you define the conditions? Yeah, this is actually something quite interesting about our project that we're trying to uh, shine more light on. We don't actually just take the average price of a phone in your city. What we do with the machine learning is we actually take a text from sites like Facebook Marketplace, and whatever the seller wrote, they say Samsung, S8, broken screen, and I have the receipt. Maybe they even say looking to sell fast or whatnot. We take that paragraph and we convert it into a block of numbers. And so the machine, what the machine does is it makes pattern recognition amongst those numbers. So every time it sees broken screen within all of the listings, you know, that's like a 100 number section that is exactly the same. And it combines those listings together. And then it also adds to it iPhone 8, it adds to it the gigabytes and all of this kind of thing to create a very big picture of your specific device from data from your specific city. And what this means is we're able to give pretty accurate results for the different kind of defects that a phone may have, if it has scratches or it doesn't. And this is the kind of thing that within the secondhand market is difficult normally when it comes to pricing, because how much does a scratch on your screen cost? Or how much does the color of the phone cost? It's hard as an individual consumer to exactly nail down that. You could research, you could try to find the patterns, but we basically show you the average price of a scratch on your screen because every phone with a scratch on its screen was devalued by this much or every phone with a bad battery was devalued by this much. And we combine the average of all of that to give you a better picture and help you make smarter decisions as a consumer. All of that said, we want to really shine more light on that within the website to show exactly how that kind of works. But uh, it's, it's in the works as, as well as a better design and UI UX for the site. So. Hopefully, uh, you'll be seeing that soon. <laughs> Are you also thinking, because you're speaking about the phones and also your homepage shows that you only focus on the phones, are you also thinking to focus on the different secondhand items? Yeah, so we will go into natural extensions from smartphones. Right now, we're currently also working on MacBooks, so that will be live within a month and a half or so. It's just a matter of targeting a bit our algorithms slightly differently. So from smartphones, we will move to electronics. The main reason being, remember, the business model is selling those leads to companies looking to buy up used devices. And within electronics, it's uh, much easier to find those business partners. And, the, and again, the, the items are much more valuable. They're willing to spend money on the marketing cost of getting those devices in. So that's actually where we want to start. But uh, our whole idea is that we want to help people with price in general. Regardless of business model, we want to be the place where you go when you're thinking, oh, I want to sell this used and I don't know how much it should cost. You can type in your description on Localist and, and see based on, you know, a kind of conglomerate of the data in your neighborhood uh, exactly what you should be pricing it at. That's more difficult for things like clothing or couches or, you know, how much does a lamp cost? But when you also look at what actually people write and how a human would, in the first place, price that lamp. It's actually not so complex, you know. If we were to go with the, uh, the price of a light, for instance, some of the factors that might go into it when you go to price it yourself, the, the, the method today, how much did you originally pay for it? How long have you had it? Is it a designer brand? Is it, you know, these different factors. You can get data on those listings and start to aggregate, you know, 
how much do designer lamps sell for in Copenhagen? You know, how much does a lamp that originally was purchased for $400 sell after one year? And these kind of things, you can, you can start to connect the dots and give a good picture of helping the user see what the market is actually showing based on certain data points. So it's kind of an interesting problem that we're looking to solve. There's a lot of variables and it's a, a big project. Uh, we only started with smartphones because it's a, it's a bit simpler to kind of categorize and, and make it very straightforward, the, the sort of connections between uh, devices, because there's enough volume and traffic and data to to begin to make those assumptions. And how long is the startup on? Uh, like how long have we been running? Yes. Yeah, so that's a sort of trick question. But I've been working on Localist for a little over two years. We went through some phases where we were a marketplace that was had this sort of auction style that connected people on their price. We shut that down in November of last year and then spent about three months where we were kind of trying to find ourselves again. And I would say in January, February of this year, we really started to uh, nail down exactly how we were going to address this problem of price. And then in April, uh, we relaunched the platform. So this version of Localist, it's about, I would say, in total six months old from, you know, initial concept of using machine learning and price to how we turn that into a business model and how we kind of present it in the front end to a consumer. That's about six months old. So, <laughs> so you're pretty new. Yeah, pretty new, pretty new. <laughs> okay, good luck for the future because, you know, the idea, in my opinion, when I researched yesterday, it was extremely interesting. And then I thought to ask you, do you have any competitors? I know there is this uh, Danish Blue Avis and everything, but it's not the same principle as you have. Exactly, yeah. We are actually not a platform where you buy or sell, so we're not like Den Blue Avis, we're not like Facebook Marketplace. Um, we're not any, uh, we're not like Blue City either, where you can, uh, you know, sell your phone to and buy it. We only want to be an arbitrator of price. We are a marketing platform, so where a company like Blue City could spend money on Facebook ads or Google ads, where they don't exactly know how much they have to spend to get a customer, or maybe they do, but it's not always guaranteed. We want to be a place where they can buy ads or buy the leads from that are extremely hot. So, you know, if we're getting 100,000 people, 50,000, 5,000 people that have clicked on, I agree to this price, give me an offer, like within the next 24 hours that I can accept, that's the person we're kind of selling their want to the different companies. When it comes to competitors, the closest competitor, I would say, is a site like Price Runner, where they're working with new items right now. They help people buy new items at the best price. And in theory, we're very similar in that aspect that we're aggregating data, helping people find the best price. But in practice, finding the best price for a new item is much more straightforward than for secondhand. So currently, I haven't found uh, someone working directly within this space of using the machine learning to generate prices and, and, you know, kind of this whole business model behind it. But never say you don't have any competitors. That's like the worst uh, amateur mistake for, for a founder. There's always somebody working on exactly what you're doing. They might just be at the same stage as us, so. And while we are talking about the idea, how did you come up with your business idea? Yeah, so, I mean, with this latest version, it's a little bit of a conglomerate, but the whole concept of Localist was started off of two main things. The first was my move from California to Copenhagen. I had to sell all my stuff on sites like Craigslist and uh, let go in the US. And when I came to the uh, Denmark, I had to buy all of it again on DBA. 
And it's such a hassle to negotiate price and deal with people about how much should I price this? Why is it this much? This kind of thing. And so that's where the initial kind of concept of building a platform to help people deal with that came from. The second part was me taking advantage of the fact that nobody knows the price of anything. So I was a power seller on eBay. And basically my, what I would do is I would go to Amazon, find an item and list it for slightly more on eBay. And everybody who bought it from eBay, I would take their money, go buy it from Amazon and tell Amazon to ship it to whoever bought it from me. And I would just collect the money in between. So I would just find these items that were hot or trending, list them for five, $10 more on my eBay store. And someone who didn't care about the price or do the research was just like, sure, I'm here, I'll buy it. And, and I would just collect the, that margin and start to ship the items off and, you know, with my mouse, just start to kind of make money. And I thought, you know, this is pretty crazy that people just have no idea how much this stuff should actually be causing. And they're not doing any pricing research because they just don't really care about, you know, 10, 20, 50 dollars even. And so, yeah, so the, the concept behind Logolus was like, okay, if people aren't really caring about this, then what if we show them, okay, you know what, this is selling for... 2000 krona right now on DBA, but click this button and you don't have to do anything. It's, you know, you're going to lose $20, but you, you know, we know you just don't want to do anything. So, so that's the whole kind of psychology behind the, the sort of buy it now button was uh, eBay's big brick. I think we're trying to do like a sell it now button for the secondhand market. And this is our kind of strategy moving forward. Great. You just told me a lot of stories and I got a bit <laughs> confused. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but have you seen Back Into the Future movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you had an option to kind of get in that car and turn back the time, so if you were able to kind of go back in the past and do something different, would you do something different? I don't think so, actually. I think that everything we have done over the past two years or so has been valuable. I like to say if I were to start a business tomorrow, I would already be, you know, I'd be able to get it up and running again in like six months. And I think that I would not want to change any of those experiences because they all made me a better founder. Some of them I had to learn the hard way, but I think if I didn't learn it the hard way, I wouldn't have put the value on it or put the importance on it that is necessary to avoid it again in the future. So I think that I, I would rather drive the car forward and into the future and see where I am in five years than try to go backwards. So you're kind of learning from the past and bringing better into the future. Yeah, exactly. And if I could, you know, speed up the future and, you know, speed right through those mistakes and still retain all the learning, I would definitely do that. But, <laughs> but I don't want to go back and change any of the ones I already made. So. Okay. <laughs> Wise man, Tegan, you are. Wise man, I can say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, that you are kind of a mentor to me, right? And I guess you are also a mentor to other people because, you know, there are people who are looking up to you, like your team members, because, you know, you've been in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. What main key activities would you suggest other entrepreneurs who basically would like to achieve their goals? Yeah, I think my main piece of advice to someone who is thinking about starting a company is start. So by that, I mean, I've talked with a lot of founders who talk about the, you know, I have this idea, I think it's cool. I'm just working on it by myself. And I think, you know, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna do it soon. And I was like, okay, so why aren't you doing it? Well, 
I don't know, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of it's kind of this uh, this weird thing where people and I've done it myself. I, you know, I did it with Localist for six months before actually starting Localist. You know, where I I talked about the idea, I tested a bit, but when I mean start, I mean you know, begin opening up the company, open up the IVS, uh, you know, create an account in Denmark on the hub, try to hire your first person, uh, you know, try to raise five thousand krona from your family or friends. And once you do that, you will get into this sort of pattern where just like it starts to grow and it starts to, you know, you get your first employee and then you're two guys working on it one day a week. And, you know, uh, you start to get some code together and, oh, you get another 5,000 from another guy. And it just, it starts to snowball. But that snowball never starts when you don't take the initial steps to actually launching a company. So... I think having a pitch deck is a cool, cool idea. Having, you know, your, your side project, cool idea, cool whatever. But if you want to actually get into this, you kind of have to dive head first because you also can't just put your toes in and like 50% it. You'll be 50% all the time and it's just, it, it doesn't work. You know, building the team will be slower and more difficult because I don't believe that you actually believe in it. When I was pitching my first uh, employees or, you know, trying to build it in the very beginning, I was still working at a startup company, actually. And we worked three days a week after my hours at the startup company I was at. So we actually used my company's office space as our first office. So I was working during the day and then at five o'clock, the other guys would come in. And then from five to 10, we would work on the project. And I think that was like, you know, okay, fine, if you're working on another job, but you, we were 15 hours a week, three guys working on it. And I think that really made people feel like we were seriously trying to build something. And I think that's necessary to get anything off the ground. Is that sort of commitment from the, you know, the, the vision and the person who is kind of trying to convince everybody to do this crazy thing. Yeah, long story short, start, do some key actions to really make steps to making it become a reality. Figure out whatever those are for your business and actually do them. And forget about the pitch deck for, for like five minutes. <laughs> As I also have mentioned, from my own experience, because I've been in a couple startups before, and this is my first real startup that I'm starting myself, is that if you're never going to try, you're never going to know what's on the other side of the wall. And you know, experience and fail is the best friend for startups. Exactly. There, there's one thing in that, though, that I would say there's this mantra... I don't know where it started, but fail fast. I actually uh, highly disagree with that. We, we had some investors in the very beginning also try to push us in that direction of just, you know, like spend the money, do it. If you fail, so what? You failed. I think that if we had done that, I would have missed out on a lot of experience as a founder. So I would say that, uh, you know, never push yourself faster than, you know, never push yourself to failure. You should be making, uh, you know, concrete decisions that you will learn something from. If you're going to learn from it, then take that action and then fail. And then, you know, you at least got some sort of learning from it. Don't just spend a lot on marketing and then be like, oh, now we're out of money. We failed. There's a sort of process that I think, you know, risk analysis you should do to really get the most out of your opportunity to be an entrepreneur. So if you've started something, you took that first step and you maybe got that first check in or whatever. I think the, the next steps you should look for is like, okay, what do I do to make this progress to the next level? And, you know, really kind of calculate that out a little bit and then execute on them. And I think that kind of slow and steady pace 
for a lot of ideas and a lot of concepts will, you know, localists, again, two, two and a half years, you get this warning sign, you know, how many years do you go before you actually start to build something, you know? But it's funny, you said we were part of this YC uh, startup school, and every week they would have these founders come in from companies we all know, Wix, Stripe, uh, Square, and one of the ones that stood out to me, each one of them said this, but one of the ones that stood out was Wix. Uh, we all know the Wix website builder. They, in their presentation, they were showing slides that had a picture of their, uh, you know, Google Analytics. After two years, they, they took a snapshot. It had 17 as a number. And it was like, so I just wanted to put this up here to show you guys who've been working on your project for a while. Um, this, this is our analytics from, from Google, uh, two years in. That's 17, that's not uh, 17,000. That's not uh, 1,700. That's, a, that's actually a 17. He's <laughs> like, like, these were the amount of users we had hitting our site two years after starting Wix. And that was like their, their daily users or whatever, right? So, and he's like, and I'm pretty sure we hit this 17 as a high point and we took this picture because it was the most active users we had had in two years. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at mine and I'm like, okay, we're at, we're at 27. We're like, we're like 60% better than Wix was at this point in time. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're passionate about what you're doing, uh, then you're doing entrepreneurship, right? You're on the right path if you're learning and, uh, you know, don't run into anything that you're, you know, think about what you do before you execute. So talking about the Wix is that the first time I came to Denmark, I started learning Wix because I always kind of wanted to learn web design and everything, but I never learned to code. And uh, Wix, as you may know, it's kind of just pick and plug. Exactly. They have a great product, but it took them five, six years to get there. And a lot of the great startups, you know, they didn't happen overnight. Airbnb was going to fail after a year and a half. And then they released this whole Obama O's campaign and started to make money and generate press. I mean, if you look at a lot of the great companies, they didn't, you know, go from zero to a million in one year. And I think that's really not a healthy way to think about your startup, especially if it's your first company. If it's your first company, you should be using it primarily as a learning experience that is hopefully successful. But you should really gain as much as you can from the process. You know, these kind of things I'm talking about, how do you pay payroll and taxes and, you know, where do you establish your company and all of this kind of things you can transfer that knowledge to the next venture if it happens to fail. And it's not something you just forget unless you fail and give up and drop out of the entrepreneurship game. So for all the guys working out there on something, just starting and thinking maybe it's not going right, that would be my advice. So, Do you think that uh, local is going to become, or would you like the local is become a multi-billion dollar company? Absolutely. My ambitions are high. I don't want to be just a Danish company. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, I think that our brand, the process that we're kind of trying to scale, like the whole business model and things like that, have a real opportunity to impact a lot of people. And again, that was my inspiration to become an entrepreneur in the first place, was to build a product that was used by a lot of people and influenced uh, their daily lives in some way, shape or form. And I think I have the potential to do that. So, While we are talking about all that, I decided to come up with a quote, okay. and that sounds something like dream big or don't dream at all. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's actually, um, I mean, I think <laughs> it's a pretty hard quote. Like, if you don't dream big, like, go home. <laughs> no, it's, uh, you belong in Silicon Valley, man. No, I think, uh, you know, it, it is true. For, for me, I guess it's about what, what is your motivations, right? You know, for, for me, it was if I want to build this thing that impacts a lot of people and creates a lot of change, 
how do I do that? Where do I begin? Where do I start? You know, even before the iPhone came out for the first time, I'm sure they had a product development team at Apple for 20 years, probably, where they were researching, going through stuff, picking out X, Y, Z. So, so I think that you have to start somewhere and think of like ways you want to make change. And even if Localist becomes a, a vehicle for my next opportunity, uh, you know, I'm able to make money off of it to build another company that, you know, goes to the moon, Jeff Bezos style, right? I think that's a really interesting way to kind of have a meaning in your years here on, on Earth. Dream, uh, I, I would say focus on, you know, focus on achieving your dreams. That's, that's the, the big point. And whether they're big or small. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see. I thank you, Tegan, for this lovely conversation. I definitely enjoyed it and I'll definitely keep in touch with you. I'm really kind of hoping that this local is going to achieve big success and really become the multi-billionaire company. Thank you. I really would like to meet you maybe in a year, post you again and see where you're at that stage, yeah, at the, that moment. The fuck up night story. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One year from yeah. now. So where did it all go wrong? No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully not. But, but yeah, I would, uh, I would uh, definitely meet you, uh, meet you up. And I definitely think that also the listeners can enjoy it. I hope so. And hopefully they gain some value out of, uh, out of listening. So. I hope that people are going to, you know, sell their secondhand uh, phones. Yeah, maybe somebody's inspired to check us out. And, uh, and we're, we are taking feedback. There's a little button on the side. So if you've heard us and want to, you know, share some of your own advice and feedback on Localist and why you think it's broken or not, click the button and, and share your thoughts. So I read each one individually. So appreciate the, the help. Maybe before we end this productive and a lot of takeaway episode, where and how people can find your service? Yeah, so I mean, right now we are expanding our marketing, so it should be easier to find us. But one of the things we heavily focused on was SEO. So you should probably be able to just Google sell my used phone Copenhagen. Secondary, we are heavily uh, on Facebook. I'm there contacting people. But the website is localist, L-O-K-A-L-I-S-T dot D-K. And yeah, of course, there you can check us out and find what's going on. So. I thank you again, Tegan, for this lovely conversation. And I'm really grateful that you agreed to be hosted on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yes, I guess I'll say goodbye to you today. Yep, see you and enjoy. Enjoy.